Today I have a story for you, but I want to start with a question that has to do with what we're going to be looking at today. I'm reading this book. It's called Tell the Truth. It's really a, a good read. It's kind of a, a bit of a heavy read, and that's not a bad thing. But it's talking about what evangelism really is and, and what faith really is. And the author was talking about um, he had gathered with a group of, a group of Christians. And he asked two questions. First question, I thought I could kind of just do this to you guys, but I won't. So keep your hands down. The first question was, if anyone here truly loves Jesus, raise your hand. Hands went up all over the place. He said, I have another question for you. Who here seeks to serve Jesus with their whole lives in every possible way, living for his glory, not their own? And the hands didn't go up quite as much. Now, there's a little problem with that, if you pay close attention. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Read the book of Hebrews. There is faith, which is marked by obedience. Paul says, work out your faith with fear and trembling, not so that you're concerned, oh my gosh, do I really believe, but to look to see if there's fruit. Now, that's not meant to scare you, because I'm sure we all, to varying degrees, struggle with living for God's glory in all areas. But the question is, do you care? One day, we're all going to meet Jesus face to face. And I'd rather we found out now, before it's too late, that we were misguided, than one day when it is, in fact, too late. So, with those two questions in the back of your mind, we're going to go into Acts chapter 6 today. And we're going to meet a man named Stephen. Stephen was an uh, amazing guy. And we'll unpack him in a moment, but first I wanted to tell you a story. When I grew up, my mom, on her dresser, had this, this tray. And the tray had lotions and powders and creams and all sorts of stuff she'd mash into her face. And in case she's listening in, she didn't need them. She was beautiful without them. And if she's not, we'll move on. So in the mornings, she had this particular rectangular-shaped thing. And I mean, clear as day, I still see it. I was probably, you know, Charlie's age when it first started going on, she'd look like an Indian princess. She'd put a, a streak here, a streak here, streak here. Then she'd work her way into the bathroom, and then she'd rub it into her face. And then she would put some powder on her face, and then some other lotion. And my sister and I were not allowed to touch it because the stuff was apparently expensive. And the one time, my cousin and I were, like, powdering ourselves to look like Casper the Friendly Ghost. We got in a lot of trouble. So you knew you didn't touch this tray. And my mom took great care to apply these, these different things to her face to give her, her face a, a glow, I guess we might say. I don't know. But what I want to tell you today, believe it or not, is God, if you love God, if you walk in obedience to God, he will make your face beautiful. In fact, a beautiful face is a sign of obedience to God in a right relationship. That means if you're ugly, you don't really love Jesus. So we're the church of the pretty. I'll explain what I mean as we go through this text, because I'm sure you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to actually go through an entire chapter of Acts today. Now, that will probably never happen again as we go through the rest of the book, so enjoy! The church was uh, having some trouble. The Hellenists uh, and the Jerusalem Jews, Christians, they were, you know, most of the believers at this time, almost all the believers were Jewish. There weren't Christians and Jews. There were Jews who believed in Jesus and Jews who denied Christ. Well, the foreign Jews, the Hellenist Jews who followed Christ, and the local Jews had, had a disagreement about the care of the foreign Jews' widows. And the apostles said, hey, you know, we can't deal with all this. We have so many people who have come to faith recently. There's too much going on for us. We need to find some men of good repute to deal with this problem. And one of these men they chose, who I'll show you in a moment, was named Stephen. And Stephen's story goes from the beginning of Acts chapter 6 all the way to the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And as I'm looking at this, you, you'll see a man who had an incredible walk, who was um, brought to trial, who defended himself, and who was ultimately killed. This is the first Christian martyr, the first person to believe in Jesus that was killed for their faith. And we're going to look at him, and I'm looking at it going, okay, how do we approach this text? And I started to think, why? why? Why does God give so much word, space, to Stephen? Why does Stephen have the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts? Why is there so much attention brought to him? And I found, in part, that as we look at that why, 
We see it's because he's designed to be an example to us. Let me show you what I mean. Acts 6, chapter 1. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. The apostles are not saying, we're not serving tables, that's below us. The apostles were saying, we need to, we need to distribute roles in this church. There's too much going on. We can't do it all. So they found some people, not because it was beneath them, but because their focus and their, their giftedness in that church was on the teaching and the preaching and prayer. So they picked out from among all the people. So there are probably about 20,000 believers at this point. They picked seven men of good repute. Imagine being the, the select seven. I mean, so, so these are guys who, who had a pretty mature walk with Christ early on. There was a unique giftedness on them. They were full of the spirit and of wisdom. It says, we'll point them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Decaner, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It says in verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Pause there a minute. When you go to Jerusalem, there was the temple. You know, the big old box building, holy of holies, offering sacrifices. There were also synagogues. Synagogues were local gathering places where people get together, kind of like a local church. And it was, um, it's argued historically, based on archaeological evidence, that at this time there were about 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. So you know how you, you drive through town and you see a church on every corner? This is not a new, new phenomenon where people couldn't just get, get unified in their faith in God. Well, the foreign Jews, Jews from foreign lands who would either move to Jerusalem or come to Jerusalem, would gather in, in groups to worship. A synagogue had to have ten people to be qualified as a synagogue, a gathering place. So there were tons of small local gatherings of believers. Here we're hearing about several. The freedmen, these were, these were slaves um, in the past who had, when they were taken into captivity as Jews, they were given their freedom and they grew up in a foreign land. Um, but interesting, one of these groups of foreign Jews were from Cilicia and Asia. Now that includes a land called Tarsus. Have you ever heard of Tarsus? It's a, a well-known guy who you're going to meet uh, not too long from now named Saul, later became Paul, uh, a persecutor of the church who came to faith, and you will know far more about him than you may ever want to know by the time we're done with Acts. But he was from there. So it's very likely that when Stephen went and disputed, which I'll explain in a minute, in these synagogues, one of the men who was there was a non-believer from Tarsus named Saul. So Stephen walks into these foreign synagogues, and he disputes. It's a discussion. And they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. I'm at verse 11 now. It says, then they, these are the, the Hellenist Jews, secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses, that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of of an angel. I want to look at this in three parts. Content, courage, and countenance. And this goes to those two questions I asked you. Do you love Jesus? Do you seek to live your life for his glory and not your own? Stephen loved Jesus. And Stephen sought 
to live his life for Jesus' glory and not his own, and it got him killed. And it brought him far more joy than you and I could ever truly comprehend. Let me show you the crazy upside-downness as we look at content, courage, and countenance. Content. Sermon is called Full of It. I've been accused of being full of it many, many times over the years. I would like to believe that I was accused of being full of it regarding the Holy Spirit, wisdom, faith, grace, and power. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Because at a young age, my father used to tell me, you're full of it. As I got older, my mom would tell me, you're full of it. And still to this day, I have many people tell me, you're full of it. I don't know what it is, but I'll assume it's this. Stephen was full in verse 3, 5, and 8 of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, faith, faith, grace, and power. What does it mean to be full of it? What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace, full of power. We're supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit. How the heck do you know? Is it just some sort of joyful bloating? You know, I think I got it today. How do you know if you're full of? What what does that mean when we read in the Bible? People are full of something. Any ideas? It's important to know. Otherwise, how the heck are you going to know when you're full of the Holy Spirit? Uh, No. The word full of means dominated, controlled, or consumed by. It has nothing to do with bloating. Dominated, controlled, or consumed by. When a person is full of the Holy Spirit, they are simply consumed with and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Stephen, look at what's going on here. And let's start in verse 5, and I'll show you why I pick 5. It says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That marks the character of Stephen. Full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. If you're just reading the Bible, you blow right by that. Maybe you stick it into your head as a fact. You keep going. You never stop to think, okay, what the heck does that mean? What Stephen's like, oh, yeah, he's got the bloat. Full of faith full of the Holy Spirit. Controlled by faith, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let's unpack it one step further. Full of faith means he walked by trust. Full of the Holy Spirit means he walked in obedience. Stephen was a man who believed in and obeyed God fully. That is what controlled his entire life. He was full of it. I'll ask you a question before we move on from that. Stephen was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen believed and obeyed God. What would be a good reason? Make sure you're awake for this one. What would be a good reason not to believe and obey God? So we don't all believe and obey God perfectly, right? Heck, maybe we don't even do it all so well. What's a good reason to not believe or obey God? Just... You might, now that's true, you might get picked on. You won't fit in real well. You might not get everything you want. I mean, there, there are some reasons, I guess, but are there any good reasons to obey God and to trust God? Well, maybe like, because every word of God proves true and he's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Maybe because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, and if while we were still sinners, he had that type of love for us, how much more so as children of God will he care for us? You know, there are reasons to not, but there aren't any real good reasons to not obey him. But yet we struggle, don't we? You ever think about why you struggle? You're not full of, you're full of something, but you're not full of the, the it that we want. You see, distraction, conformity, pride, approval of others, the list goes on and on, they lead us to to doubt and deny. It's a daily battle to walk in trust and obedience to God. Because we're fallen. We're in the flesh. We, we don't always do what, what we're supposed to do. We prefer to trust in ourselves. And we have that little throne in our heart. And we keep wanting to sit in it. That's a daily battle between the flesh and the spirit. And I think we need to be, I know, we need to be reminded each day of who God is, how much he loves us, what he calls us to, and why. That question about do you love Jesus and do you seek to live your whole life for his glory You do understand, living your life for God's glory is going to so far surpass your wildest hopes and dreams. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you want want the summer house and the fancy car and the big bank account and the good health? (laughs) Well, I'm going to give you a horrible, miserable life, but you got to do it. 
See, that's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, tell me everything you want, throw it away, you're not getting any of it. Now write down everything you're afraid might happen to you, that's what I'm going to do. Now follow me or go to hell. Sometimes I think we think that might be what he's like, but he's really not. Often we say, yeah, Jesus, I, I really want this. He says sometimes, okay. Sometimes he says, no, I have something so much better than that. When I was a kid, I used to go to the toy store with my dad on Sundays. And, and I would, uh, you know, he, my sister and I were allowed to pick out a gift. Actually, you know, it just came to mind the better stories with my grandpa. We were at Disney World. He took us to buy presents. Well, I picked out a small little stuffed animal because I didn't want to impose on my grandpa. It was a cute little Mickey Mouse. Well, my sister, she was a little, had a little more chutzpah, we like to say as Jewish kids. She wanted, and literally, it was a five-foot-tall Minnie Mouse. Pa, can I have Minnie Mouse? Do you know what Pa said? Sure. Pa had to buy a seat on the airplane for Minnie Mouse to get home, too. So Minnie sat in the window next to my sister, and I had little Mickey sitting on my lap. I think that uh, that's often how God truly is. We, we're, we're afraid that he's going to give us junk, which he won't. But sometimes we're afraid to ask because we think he doesn't really want to give us joy. It's often the big Minnie Mouse that he's offering to us if we would just ask. And if we ask for the big Minnie and he says no, it's because he's got something far better. The obedience isn't a negative, it's a gift that we're offered. Well, Stephen walked by belief and obedience, and it led to, it's an if-then correlation, it led to verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power. Those two go together. If you walk in belief and obedience, it leads to being full of grace and power. Full of grace, grace means God's favor. Power, obviously, the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, or God's strength. Because Stephen walked in obedience, he received God's favor in abundance and God's power working in and through him in abundance. He was maturing in his faith. He was being used powerfully by God in his faith, and he was perfectly prepared and positioned in his faith. That's it. The character of Stephen. He was a man who walked by faith through, faith through grace in daily obedience to God, which led to him being used mightily by, by God and seeing the favor of God bestowed upon him which caused him to be perfectly positioned and prepared. This leads to the main part, the courage. Courage is an attribute that I think we all really like. We like to read books or watch movies about courageous people. Uh, remember the, um, gosh, what's the, the D-Day invasion? What was that big movie several years back? Um, Tom Hanks was in it. Saving Private Ryan. Everybody see Saving Private Ryan? You know when the guys come off the boats and they're storming the beach at Normandy? You look at some of these kids, I mean, and they're kids. And they went and they fought this war so that we might have the freedoms that we have today in large measure. And they laid down their lives. They'd run off of these things and bullets would just hit them and the line behind would keep running. And yeah, they were inundated with fear, but they had the courage to press on and keep going. And you watch a movie like that and you're like, wow, wow, what type of courage. You see kids, sometimes you read stories of, of kids who go through a, a tragedy and they just keep pushing through and pushing through and pushing through to, to reach their dreams against all hopes and, and odds. And you're just like, wow, what, what courage. You see single moms raising kids who are in bad situations and they, they just persevere against everything. You're like, wow, what courage. We love courage. But often we find our fill of courage in other people. But the reason we love courage is because God made us to be bold and courageous people as his children in this earth. And I think deep down we all want to be courageous, but we just don't know how. I think we want to be, as Christians, courageous for Christ, but we don't know how, and, and fear creeps in, and we kind of fade off into the back and hope somebody else will be courageous for us. And we, we find people, and we try to support people and encourage other people to be courageous for us, but God tells us, no, you! Be strong and courageous. He said it to Joshua and it applies to us. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So how do we live courageously? Well, I think it starts with looking at the reality. We live in a time and a place where Christianity is cool. It's acceptable to be a Christian. How often have you told someone, oh, I'm a Christian? And they're like, oh, oh, Christian? Or what are you doing Sunday? Oh, I'm going to church. Oh, yeah. No, it's cool. It's okay. It's acceptable. 
don't dig too far down or you'll find that the cool and acceptable isn't really Christian. It's not saving faith. But the term is okay. But when you read the New Testament, you see Christianity wasn't always cool and acceptable. Stephen saying, I, I'm a follower of Christ. Cool. No, clunk. He took a stone to the head. Saul was running around, who later Paul, being persecuted because he was a Christian. You look around most places of the world today, it's not cool to be a Christian. It's a good way to get yourself killed. But we often go to the cool, the, the acceptable, and there's a danger to that. See, when I was growing up as a Jew, Jew, Jewishness isn't cool. You know, it's not, oh yeah, hey, let's all identify as Jews. We lived in a pocket, and we hung out in a pocket, and, and you can hear comments from the kids growing up. Oh, look, they're the money-grubbing Jews. Oh, look at the pointy-nosed Jews. I was in college. I mean, it was, this was not intense persecution. I was in college my first couple weeks, and I'm walking to, uh, to dinner with a couple guys I met, and I... It was one of the weirdest moments of my life. We're all walking together, side by side, and the two, I was in the middle, the two on either end, out of nowhere, I don't remember the context of the conversation, said, one of them says to the other, yeah, I don't think I could ever be friends with a Jew. They're just screwed up people. And I was like, yeah, me neither. And I'm sitting there going like, oh, if they only knew. I won't tell you what I said, because there were no words to add. I didn't say anything. But what if Christianity was like that? What if it wasn't so cool? What if it wasn't so acceptable? What if it wasn't embraced by the culture? Because you'll find throughout history, whenever Christianity gets too cozy with the culture, it loses its power. It's no longer full of people, full of grace and, and power. It started with Constantine. The emperor embraced Christianity. They started building these church buildings all over the land. You know, before that, there weren't these church buildings. They started building them because it was cool, it was acceptable, and it got really, really, really watered down and turned into a giant, giant mess. But if you go to a persecuted nation, if you go to, say, Iran, or throughout China, uh, Pakistan, perhaps, and you find someone and ask, are you a Christian, and they tell you yes, you found a genuine, real, live, honest, regenerate soul, because by them telling you yes, they're risking their lives. Now, I say all that because there are three passages I was looking at this week. Matthew 16, John 15, and 2 Timothy 3, which we were in a, a week or two ago. Listen to what these say, and let's figure out if Jesus was out of his mind. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for... Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Take up your cross and, and follow me. Anyone feel like they're lugging a cross around through life? It's cool, man. It's acceptable. John 15. You guys remember that one? If not, I can do that whole John series again. John 15, verse 18. If the, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Second Timothy 3.12 says that anyone who desires to live a godly life will face persecution. Now, did Jesus not understand, I wonder, the context of 21st century America? Do you, honestly, this is not some sort of loaded question. Do you walk around feeling like the people of the world hate you because you're a Christian? I don't. Do you walk around feeling immensely persecuted because of your faith? I don't. So what's going on here? What, what is Jesus talking about? Was he wrong? Or might we be missing something? I would like to contend that he's not wrong, because if he's wrong, there is no need to ever come back here again, and our faith is in vain, and we're all in a world of trouble. But I also don't really want him to be right. You see, when we are walking by faith and obedience, we'll be perfectly prepared and positioned like Stephen. Now look where Stephen ended up. 
Stephen was hanging out in the synagogues of non-believing foreign Jews. Stephen was hanging out with people that hated Jesus, telling them about who Jesus was, how they were in a wrong relationship with Jesus, but what Jesus did for them. And it wasn't necessarily embraced. He was out in the world, confronting the world through the power of the Holy Spirit of sin and righteousness and judgment. He was saying, I love you so much that I want you to know what God has done for you so that you might turn to God and be saved. And as we looked at last week, Jesus told us, when you do that, there are going to be a few possible reactions. There might be apathy. I don't care. There might be hostility. I want you dead. Or there might be saving faith. Well, Stephen was walking in obedience, and whenever you walk in obedience, you will be put in those positions, and you will face potential persecution. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak only for myself as far as the specifics here. I'm concerned that I'm not walking full of faith in the Holy Spirit because I'm not dealing with these types of things as regularly as I think God would desire for me to. Often I will meet someone who's not a Christian and I will shirk away. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to make them angry with me. I don't want to ruin what I might get out of them, so I kind of sidestep it. But I wonder what would happen if I had the courage in all situations to walk in loving obedience to Christ. Now, understand Stephen is not having an intellectual discussion. You dummies. You fools. You're going to hell. You don't use your noggins right. Look. Look at the facts. Look at the facts. Stephen loved these guys. He loved these people because Christ first loved him. How much did he love him? Check out what happens at the end as they're stoning him to death. And he sees Jesus. We'll get to this in a second. He doesn't say, zap him. He says, forgive him. Forgive him. That's crazy, but that's love. So out of love and obedience, Stephen is sharing the truth. They're disputing at first. That means to seek or examine together. And when Stephen is presenting the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit, the darkness cannot overcome the light. The light overcomes the darkness. And often when light shines in darkness, the darkness lashes out. So what do the people do? They begin to instigate and slander and throw false accusations. And look at what Stephen does. He runs back to the safety of the fellowship of believers. No. He waters it down. Well, well, guys, guys, now, now this works for me. Maybe it doesn't work for you. No. He, he doesn't do anything except speak the truth in love. How? How do you do that? How, when you are confronted with people who hate God, can you continue to lovingly speak the truth in love? And why would you even want to? Because like Bob said, you, people might not like you so much, you might not fit in, and you might get hurt. We are so fortunate to live in a time and a place where you're not going to most likely be stoned for your faith. Let's be honest. The odds of anyone here ever being killed for being a Christian in this culture are very, very slim. But what if that changed? What if God relocated us to somewhere, and we lived in a place where you had a real live possibility of being killed for your faith? If you got kids, what about if your kids might die for their faith? Would you really want to share Jesus with a seven-year-old kid if that kid might open his mouth and get taken away from you or killed? Now that starts to become serious business, doesn't it? So what would motivate a person to live at their faith at the risk of their lives. Because Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. See, Jesus wasn't crazy. And we're so fortunate to live where we are, but watch, what, watch what's going on here. Stephen knew who God was. He had come to a genuine faith in Christ. He understood that he was separated by God. God gave him the law. Stephen knew the law. Stephen knew that the law came not to make him right with God, but to convict him of sin. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the Ten Commandments again, great place to start. The law, through Romans we're told, the law convicts us of sin. You can't keep God's law perfectly, period. But if you can't keep God's law perfectly, you can't live in relationship with God. That's a problem. That's why the Jews had the sacrificial system pointing forward to Christ. God made a way despite the fact you couldn't keep his standards, which he had created when he created people. 
that he made a way to make us right with him. That culminates in Christ's coming. And Stephen saw that his eyes were open to the truth when he went, my word! I'm not right with God because of my ability to keep his commandments. I'm right with God because his son kept the commandments perfectly and imputed, gave, put his righteousness upon me. So I don't have to do anything. I'm right with God. And it's not just me. It's for all who would believe. And God, if you love me that much, if you restored our relationship perfectly, if I have an eternity in your presence and you dwell in me now and you, you command me to go out and tell, I will joyfully go. So he went, just like we can. But you can't fake it. That's the problem. You can't be courageous if you don't know the God who you trust. Now, Stephen didn't decide on Monday. He came to faith on Monday, and on Tuesday, he's like, oh, I'm a man of deep faith. No, he grew over time. We don't know how long he was a Christian. And the dirty little secret that you might not want to know is Stephen was a person just like us, and he was afraid, I guarantee you, during this time. But fear didn't control him. The Holy Spirit did. Don't think for a minute. When you see people who have a deep and abiding faith, that they don't shake on the inside. Don't think for a minute when you hear stories of people talking to other people about Jesus. Their palms don't get sweaty and they don't get a little nauseous and they don't get a little afraid. But they're not controlled by that fear. They're filled with the courage that comes from the right character. That comes from the proper content. So he knew who Jesus was. He came to faith in Christ, and he began day by day walking in obedience. He was perfectly positioned, and he was perfectly prepared. Let me talk about that preparation for one second before we move on here. I was uh, having a dinner with someone this week, very new believer. And they were telling me how they really wish that God would give them the words to speak at just the right time, because God says he'll do that. Absolutely right. Sometimes I don't feel like he gives me the words. I said, well, why do you think that is? I said, I don't know. He says he'll do it. I said, well, how are you doing with storing up his word in your heart? Well, what do you mean? Are you feasting on his word? Are you memorizing his word? Well, no. But he says he'll give me the word. Yeah, he does. See, put it all together, though. You can't just pick what you want God to do when you don't walk in obedience. God, make me courageous. But I am not doing any of the stuff you tell me to because it's hard work. You're not going to be very courageous. God, give me the words to speak, but I'll neglect your, your word. So you put it in my head when you want me to speak it. Not going to work. As we begin to walk in daily obedience, start with what you know. Understand this. You, don't, you walk by grace through faith. God, I do know who you are. God, I do want to love you, but I just don't really love you. Remember Peter and Jesus? I'm kind of fond of you, but I know I got to agape, really love you, but I can't do it. Tell God that, but I want to, and he'll take care of it for you, because he first loved you. God, I want to be courageous, but I'm a scaredy cat. God, I want to walk in obedience, but I'm so prideful I don't do it. God, will you please help me? Boom! You've just walked through that narrow gate. Because it's not about what you do, it's about what he's done and what he will continue to do in you. You're not saved because of what you do. You're saved because of what he's done. You fall before him in obedience. Revelation 3.20. Jesus is knock-knock joke, except it's not a joke. Jesus is speaking to a church, to a body of believers, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What the heck is he talking about? He's talking about fellowship. He's saying, guys, I desire to walk in intimate relationship with you. I'm not going to kick the door down and force it, but I'm going to invite you to trust me and obey me so you could experience this proximity of relationship, this joy, this abundant life, and be used mightily for my glory and your joy and the salvation of others, if you will trust. Now, here's the countenance part. Why do we do this? Why, why do we even care about the right content or character? Why do we even care about walking in courage? It's what we were made for. It's for God's glory. It's for our joy. And it's for the salvation of others. Did you know that every believer in God will have a beautiful face? So when you look at someone, if they're dirt ugly, you can tell them they don't love Jesus. And they'll look at you and they'll probably say, you don't either. So get a pretty mask. It says right here that Stephen had the face, had a face like that of an angel. 
What the heck? Is that like one of those, you know, the goat, the donkey, the horse, and the lion? What's that talking about? He had the face, like the face of an angel. So they're all mad at him, and then they're like, whoa. Wow, so pretty. Any idea what's going on there? Me neither. Let's close. No, I'm kidding. What it's talking about is there was a glow that emanated off of this man. Only one other person's face glowed. Or do we say glue? I don't know what the past tense of glowed it is. Only one other man's face glowed like this. Moses. You remember that? Exodus, what is it, 30, uh, 33 and 34. Moses would go into the tabernacle. And he'd come out of the tabernacle and he'd have to drop a veil over his face. Because his face shone the radiance of the glory of God because he had dwelled in God's presence and he was communicating God's truth to the people. The people couldn't even gaze upon Moses' face directly because it glowed so. Well, all of a sudden, these Jews, who knew the word of God well, who were hearing the truth of God clearly, saw something freaky. Oh. It's not that Stephen was so pretty. It's that Stephen's face had this freaky glow that sure looked a lot like the glow that Moses' face must have shown, but there was no veil over his face. Now watch this. I've shown you how one of the, the foreign synagogues was from the area that covered Tarsus. It's almost certainty that Paul was there. When Stephen dies, we know Paul's there because they laid their garments at his feet. If you flip your Bible, and I won't unpack this for you completely right now, but if you flip your Bible or just write it down to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is penned by, actually it's dictated by Paul, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, so Paul's here, and Paul's looking at this beautiful face that, that glowed like Moses's. And later, when Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, this sounded a little different to me this week. It says, starting in verse 7, Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? I wonder if when he wrote that, he was seeing in his mind's eye that, that beautiful face of Stephen that presented the gospel to him that, that he denied at the time. And if you keep going down in, in verse uh, 16, I'm sorry, verse 15, it says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read... A veil lies over the hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That moment impacted Paul deeply. Paul saw the confirmation of the message. He didn't respond positively to the gospel at that point, did he? He said, coats at my feet, watch this guy stone, get, a, get permission from the high priest to go out and kill some more. Let's put this stupid message to an end. And he marched off to Damascus, and Jesus grabbed a hold of the man. But that moment impacted him, and he saw the reality of the need for God to open his eyes to come to faith, not just to have facts accepted by him. So Stephen, though glows, and he experienced a joy beyond measure. What was the joy from? Imagine the joy that would come from knowing that God is using you mightily, perfectly within his will. Wouldn't you love to know that you're right where God wants you to be, perfectly prepared by God to be used how he desires, and he is smiling down upon you as his glory radiates off of you. Now, your face won't glow, but God's light will shine through you. If you walk full of it, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith and obedience. God will perfectly position you and prepare you, and you can know with certainty and a joy beyond measure that you are walking right smack dab in the middle of his will for his glory, and you will experience a joy that the world can't produce. Now, something else even crazier happened. Stephen was stoned. And in being stoned, he had a joy that I would gather you and I have never experienced. The joy of stoning. Ah, ah. Who here wants to be stoned for their faith? I mean, let's go make some people mad. Right? Just a big rock to the head sounds like just an awesome walk with God. We can invite a whole bunch of non-believing friends to come and get stoned with us. Just explain not that type of stone, the rock type of stone. And it'll be cool and they'll come and... I don't think anybody would walk with us, would they? But I bet Stephen would. 
if he knew it's where God wanted him. And do you know why? If your Bible's open and if you're still awake with me, look at Acts 7.56. And this is just crazy. So, he, these people have incited the, the people and the high priest, and they've distorted the message of Stephen, and they bring him to a trial. And we'll look at this sermon in the week ahead. But at the end of the sermon, they decide they're going to kill Stephen. Because he's just spreading this junk everywhere. And when they stone people, they take them to the edge of the city. They push them over a cliff into a lower area. And the men would grab rocks. And these aren't like little... They, they grab grapefruit-sized chunks of earth with jagged edges. And they would just bombard. It was downhill. They would just bombard this body that would just be massacred and mutilated with these stones pouring down upon them. The head, the face, the back, the body. Pain that we can't even probably comprehend. And if I'm getting stoned, I'm yelling, Ow, stop! Ow, stop! God, make it stop! But it says here, and Stephen says, Behold, this is as he's being stoned, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now this isn't a dream or a hallucination or a vision. Stephen, as he's being killed, was given a more full vision of reality. And he looked, and not a vision of, but Jesus himself in bodily form was up there looking down at him. Now, as you keep reading here, he doesn't say, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. He doesn't. Not at all. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's saying, let me die and forgive them. What must Jesus' face have looked like when Stephen looked upon it? Can, can you... This is real life Jesus, body and all. God in the flesh. What was his expression when he looked at Stephen? Could you imagine gazing into the eyes of Jesus? I imagine it was some mix of, of ferocious anger at what sin had caused to, to happen. This is fully in Jesus' control, understand. He could have stopped this at any moment, but he didn't. The sin, the effect of sin in his perfect creation, created by him and for him and through him, but at the same time, that loving joy as he looked upon his friend and his child, Stephen. The, the grin and the rage all mixed together, the holiness and the love, the, the mercy and the wrath all mixed in together. See, this God we worship is a dangerous God. He's a dangerous beast. You don't approach him lightly, but when you know you're right with him, you can approach him directly and joyfully. You don't high-five Jesus. Woo! Now you fall down in awe of the fact that he wants to high-five you. And Stephen saw him, and when he saw him, the joy that must have filled his body. Could you imagine? You see, one day you and I will too see that face. Think about that for a moment. And at this very moment, that face is looking down upon us. Fortunately or unfortunately, every word that's coming out of my mouth this morning, Jesus is listening to, and I'm going to be accountable to him one day for it means I better not be misleading you. Every action we participate upon, he's watching us. He's guiding us, desiring to guide us more fully for his glory, not ours. And one day we'll see that face. And the day we see that face, there are two options. And I think Jesus might ask us two questions fully knowing the answer. Do you love me? I think everyone that goes to a church, especially in this country, say, of course I do. Did you walk in obedience to me? Now, if we, it's not perfect obedience. He's not going to be like, well, remember in August 1992 when you screwed up? Well, you're out of here. No, that's not what he's talking about. Did you desire to live for my glory or did you desire to live for yours? Did you attempt to walk in obedience to me day by day or did you say, screw you, I'm doing it my way? Because on the day we see him, it will either be with joy beyond measure. Enter into your eternal rest, saying basically, come on home. Or, away from me. I never knew you. Now, I never, ever, ever want to allow anyone who God has put me in a relationship with to approach that moment without at least knowing or having 
me tell them how much God loves them and the seriousness of what's going to happen one day. Stephen saw the face and he had joy beyond measure. When I see the face, I want the joy beyond measure. I pray that when you see the face, you want the joy beyond measure. But this isn't about cool. This isn't about acceptable. This is about a people who lived at enmity with God, who God forgave so that they might live in relationship with him for his glory, not their own. You'll see a midweek thought come out Wednesday, hopefully not Tuesday at 10, 10 p.m. And it's an illustration of two notebooks. Often we approach Christianity as writing down our hopes and dreams in a notebook. Here you go, Jesus, make it happen. Oh, for your glory, but make it happen. As opposed to taking the blank notebook and saying, all right, Jesus, you fill in the pages. It's for your glory, not mine. This is your life, not mine. And little by little, folks, here's what you find. His burden is light and his yoke is easy. His desire is to give you a future and a hope, to prosper you and to bless you and to use you mightily. You'll never be lonely again. You'll never feel hopeless again. You'll never feel uh, discouraged beyond measure again. Oh, you won't laugh and giggle and fit in and feel cool all the time, but you'll know with certainty that the eyes that looked upon Stephen are constantly looking upon you. And God is not distant. God is very near. And we experience the reality of that as we live a life full of it. What motivated Stephen to do this? Stephen knew who God was. He knew what Christ had done for him. And little by little in his fallen fleshly body, he fell before God, praying to God, pleading to God, that God might empower him to live for his glory, God's glory and not his own. He understand that in so doing, he'd be living the life he was made to live. That in so doing, he would know the love God had for him and God himself far more fully. That in so doing, he would have peace and joy and certainty that God has given to us to the point that he could face intense persecution and in fact, even death by stoning joyfully, joyfully, because that slight and momentary affliction, yes, that is what a stoning of persecution is. I don't know how. I fear I might run away and I would in my own is preparing for him an eternal weight of glory. He saw where he was going and to whom he was going. And, don't miss this, as we live this way, God has foreordained it to be such that we might be used to reveal the truth to many others so they might be saved. This is very serious business we're about. Very serious business. This isn't a joke. This isn't fun. This isn't a Sunday thing. Your life as a Christian, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on the, the feeling you have of the day, trust me, it's fortunately, is no longer your own. It's his. Now, what might happen? I ask for myself, and I pray you might ask for yourself too. What might happen if we fell down before God and we said, Jesus, can I have that notebook back that I filled in? Can I rip out the pages and just stop with this nonsense and give you the blank one? Because you're in charge anyway, and I'm tired of playing the game. God, would you help me live for your glory and not my own? Would you allow me to lay down all of my hopes and dreams at your feet, and you replace them with the desires that you have for me? Would you give me the, the faith of Abraham, who would lay down his very own son before you to sacrifice him, so I might be floored by the love and grace and mercy and the way you intervene, so you might say to me, stop! I don't want the boy, I want the heart. Father, create me a clean heart, renew a right spirit. What might life be like for us if we walked a little bit more like Stephen, full of it? So I hope some point during the coming year, someone might tell me, I pray maybe you guys might tell me, hey, Pastor John, you're full of it, as a compliment. If it's not a compliment, keep it shut. And I pray that we might be known as a church who's full of it. In the right way, not the wrong. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the example of Stephen. A regular, ordinary, fallen, sinful person just like us. Who by grace through faith was saved. And that he walked in daily obedience more and more. Not in perfection, but in obedience. So that he might be prepared for the good works that you have prepared beforehand for him. 
God, I pray that we might do the same. God, on our own, we will try to live for our glory all the time. Even as Christians, we still can fall back into the flesh and understand more fully the words of Paul in Romans who says, though I know what I should do, I don't do it. We all do that, God. But I pray we would do it less. I pray this very day, Holy Spirit, you might convict us and empower us and encourage us to know your will more fully, to see it more clearly, and to trust in walking in obedience to it. Life's scary because we forget to stay focused on you. We get freaked out because we forget who you are and who we are. God, Psalm 23 isn't a joke, and it's not fictitious. It's not an analogy. It's reality. As we walk through this life, Father, help us remember that we are the sheep and you are the good shepherd. And you're not just any shepherd, but you laid down your life for your sheep. Your sheep hear your voice and they know your voice. God, I pray that we would understand we're sheep. We're not kings. We're not shepherds to, to guide you. We're sheep made to follow you. And Father, I pray we might know the joy that Stephen knew. That we might have the courage that he had. And while Stephen never saw a person come to faith through the, the events of Acts 6 into verse 8. There are many who have come to faith as a result. This is the trigger who sent the church out of Jerusalem, and I'm sure he never had any idea that that's what he was going to be used for. This is a man who was a, a chink in the chain of Saul coming to faith. Well, I think he led quite a few. God, this is a man who people have read of for thousands of years. Oh, if Stephen had a glimpse of how mightily you would use him, I fear he might drop dead in the moment he knew it. And I fear the same might be true for us. God, give us an eternal focus. Help us understand that the seemingly insignificant acts of obedience day by day might and probably in fact will be used in ways so far beyond our ability to comprehend, but yet they will glorify you. They will bring us joy, and I pray they might bring many people to come to know the truth of your love for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.